Hello, I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Business of Sport podcast on The Athletic. With us, as ever, Matt Slater, football news reporter at The Athletic. And today we're going to be talking about the City Football Group. The Athletic have this week published an in-depth piece looking at the entire City Football Group. So that's the group that controls Manchester City, New York City FC, Melbourne City FC, amongst others. It's so in-depth that it's actually in two parts. So we're going to explore some of the themes of that on today's pod with Professor Simon Chadwick and the Barnsley co-chairman, Paul Conway. This is the Business of Sport podcast brought to you by The Athletic. If you're not a subscriber, you can read that amazing two-part special report by simply heading to athletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman. And right now, if you subscribe to The Athletic, you can give another subscription as a gift for free. The perfect present for any football fan this Christmas. So you enjoy great analysis and in-depth features from the very best football writers around and you get ad-free versions of all our podcasts. It is the perfect present for yourself and someone else. Just go to theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman. Let's start the pod then with Professor Simon Chadwick, who's the director of Eurasian Sport at the EM Leon Business School, and a man who knows an awful lot about the City Football Group, and in particular, Ferran Soriano. Simon, welcome to the pod. First of all, just give us an overview, really, of City Football Group. So City Football Group is obviously based upon a traditional English football club based in East Manchester that was acquired by an Abu Dhabi government investment vehicle uh, about 12 years ago and since then has grown into a network of clubs that stretches from New York in the west across to to Tokyo in the east uh, and obviously down to Australia in the south taking in the likes of China, India, um, Spain, Belgium, France. Obviously, it's very similar to to other networks, uh, and we think particularly about Red Bull. But we also know that the Qataris have have got uh, uh, various clubs across uh, across Europe, in particular. I think one fundamental difference between City Football Group and the others in that, essentially, Abu Dhabi is behaving as a as a rentier state. And a rentier state is, is essentially a state that invests in overseas assets to generate revenues because those revenues are then used in lieu of taxation back home. So Abu Dhabi doesn't have a domestic taxation system. The citizens live tax-free. And that tax-free system is in place principally to preserve the position of a government that wasn't elected. And so there isn't democracy in the sense that we would know it. And so City Football Group and Manchester City and the individual franchises are all a constituent part of this, um, this rentier state system that, that, that Abu Dhabi has. Alongside that, you need to keep in mind that we're living in an increasingly post-oil world. Uh, we know that countries are moving towards a situation where cars won't run on petrol, we're going to have solar power, etc., etc. And so what Abu Dhabi is trying to do is, is to diversify its economy. And this means investing in revenue-generating assets. And, and I guess this does raise an interesting question about can you make money from football? But I think what's really interesting about City Football Group in this context is the investment from Silver Lake, uh, the US private equity investor, 
which is invested into the likes of WWE uh, and, and, and other such um, sport and entertainment properties. And as we've seen with the All or Nothing documentary series at, at, at City, uh, you know, we know that we're moving towards uh, a club that is focused less on sport and much more on entertainment. And so we do hear City Football Group being referred to in terms of Disneyfication. In other words, the, the creation of, a, of an organisation that uses Walt Disney, the Walt Disney Empire as its template. And think about that, you know, that's different franchises, different film franchises, merchandise, shops, you know, lots of different types of content. And this is essentially what City Football Group has very quickly become over the last decade. And this is this is a source. This is potentially a source of revenue for Abu Dhabi. You know, they they're going to be able to sell content. They they're going to be selling merchandise. They've got connections to, for instance, uh, a company called Reliance Geo in India, which is uh, one one shareholder of Reliance Geo is 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 Silver Lake. Another shareholder in Reliance Geo is. Uh, um, is Mubadala, the Abu Dhabi Sovereign Wealth Fund. Interestingly, Reliance Geo, which is a, a digital and telecommunications company in India, is based in Mumbai, which just so happens to be um, the city in which City Football Group has got its franchise. So there's a lot of politics and money and entertainment. And what City Football Group is trying to do is to join the dots on all of these things through its, through its network. And this, of course, is ably enabled by Ferran Soriano, the, 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 the chief executive. And um, my relationship with Ferran Soriano goes back nearly 15 years when he first came to speak to my students at the University of London, where I was working at the time. Um, he was the, the, the vice president of, and finance director of Barcelona. And, and he gave a presentation, which was kind of corporate strategy 101, um, you know, kind of nine o'clock day one corporate strategy module, and 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 the way he spoke was was really compelling and clear, and was the kind of delivery where you thought, ah, all that stuff in class, you know, this is it in action. But what he did is he he set out a vision of a Walt Disney type football club, and he specifically and explicitly referenced Walt Disney as a benchmark for what he was trying to do. What we have with City Football Group is this convergence of the old traditional Manchester City football type you know, club that we're all familiar with, and then this carbon fuel driven Gulf state that is looking to uphold its political system whilst looking towards its future prosperity. And then a very ambitious and dare one say visionary chief executive and associated set of senior managers who've all come to, together to deliver what we now know as City Football Group. When he was at Barcelona, was that his dream for Barcelona? And and for, um, well, I'm guessing mainly for financial reasons, he couldn't implement his ideas? My sense is that that was his ambition at Barcelona. Uh, I think he's still a Barcelona fan. Um, as, as we all know, you can take you, you can you can take the uh, you can take the man or the woman out of whichever city it is, but you can't take that city out, so yeah. out of the man or the woman. <laughs> and I'm a prime example of that. So I think he's still a big Barca <laughs> fan, and he would have liked to do this with Barca. But but as we know, Barca, there are really two things about Barcelona: is, is politically, it's very difficult because obviously 
the board is elected by the, the, the members, the socios, the fans. As we saw back in 2015, for instance, when the Catalonian independence vote took place, you know, this is a highly charged environment. And I think uh, you know, that was just a step too far to, to take Barcelona to a kind of multi-franchise global commercial behemoth was just would, would have just been a step too far. And, and I think uh, Fran Soriano knows that. Uh, I think the other thing about uh, Barcelona is, is you know, as we're now seeing, it's it's in constant political turmoil. I mean, the the years are kind of you know the two thousands, early two thousand tens, when we had Guardiola and Messi and Xabi and all. You know, this these were relatively stable years, but we we know that historically Barcelona is politically unstable, and that really I think impacts upon its its economic its economic uh, strength. Financially, it it you know it, it struggles. It's it's got financial problems now. We've seen with the development of the new camp. You know, it's 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 even been difficult to get the money together to redevelop the new camp. What we've seen at City Football Group with Fran Soriano is is he's been able to enact his vision, but obviously he's aligned with people who have the resources and the wherewithal to understand what he's trying to do and to to fund what he's trying to do. And so it is this kind of perfect alignment of people who want to do something different and they've got lots of money and somebody who's got lots of vision and sees football in a particular way. Did Ferran Soriano recruit the City Football Group or the other way around? Simple answer to that is I don't know but if you're asking me what I feel might have happened I suspect that Soriano might have pitched his vision to the Abu Dhabi owners at, at Manchester City and obviously at, at that particular time when uh, Soriano came in City Football Group had already been under Abu Dhabi ownership for, for three, nearly four years. Um, Soriano left Barcelona, as did many of, of the senior directors of his time at Barcelona. They left, some of them under disgrace, uh, and, and, and there are issues still around that uh, even now. Soriano then went to work for Spanair, and in 2010, some of your listeners might recall there was a, a big air crash in, in Madrid airport when a Spanair uh, plane crashed. And there were all kinds of issues uh, around that. There was an investigation. There were um, reports concerning you know, management malpractice and so forth. And at that point, Soriano left Spanair. He, so essentially, he was looking for a, a role. Presumably, he returned to his vision that, that he was developing at Barcelona. I think one of the thing, crucial things to keep in mind about him is, is this guy was a tech millionaire by the time he was 30. So, you know, he's, this, he's, he's no mug. He's, he's not somebody who's just kind of wandered in off the streets. He, mm -hmm. he knows how to run a business. He knows how to make money. He was educated at a very, very good business school in, in Barcelona, got his MBA from this business school. And so I, I, I suspect that he was being very entrepreneurial, very strategic in going to a City Football Group. It was a meeting of minds. A meeting of minds, and and, and I think, you yeah. know, of, of kind of intentions and, dare one say, perhaps even mm -hmm. souls as well. Yeah, yeah. I, it's, it's really interesting. So we've been listening to, you know, we've talking for 10 minutes here, and we're talking about geopolitics, rentier states, Disneyfication. This used to be a football club. I think, you know, some people think they've been a Mickey Mouse club for years, but, but, but we're talking about something different, aren't we? This is, you know, the intersection of tech, in, you know, big money, politics. It's got very complicated. In some ways it hasn't. Because if you think about it, you know, a lot of football clubs emerged out of business and industry and communities anyway. You know? So I know it's, this has always been happening. 
but I do, uh, I, I do think that you know, just as many of us are just getting our heads around the fact that you know, Sky TV. If you want to watch the Premier League, you've got to watch on Sky. I mean, it's been nearly, nearly thirty years, and still, you know, I'm kind of right. Okay, can I just watch it on a Sunday afternoon? The uh, on TV. So a lot of us were just as we're about to be, just as we're getting used to this kind of commercialization of football, it's moved on again. And the way that I like to characterize it is, is, the, is, is, is I call it the new geopolitical economy of uh, football because it isn't just about business people, it's also about states and politicians and oil and gas and relationships between countries. And then you throw into the mix this change from old ways of consuming football. So in other words, watching on TV on a Saturday night or whenever it might be through to now, you know, you've got your mobile device and you watch for 90 seconds. We've seen this proliferation of, of, um, of uh, documentary series on Amazon and Netflix. I mean, for goodness sakes, we've even got Hollywood A-listers buying uh, Wrexham. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I so I think you know this kind of sport and entertainment convergence, which many of us are part of. You know, many of us watch it, many of us listen to it, many of us are part of it, but we perhaps don't realise what's actually happening. So you're throwing in money and politics and countries and nations and oil and gas and entertainment and social media, and 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 I think this is a really kind of dense, complicated network. Mm. of competing interests and, and I, I think that phrase competing interests is a really really important one because you raise the question who wins you know is Amazon the winner yeah. is City Football Group the winner is Abu Dhabi the winner who's the winner and Simon it, it it's definitely not sports washing right it's definitely not it's definitely not a great big fiddle against financial fair play I would respond to that in in, in the following way I think as far as uh, financial fair play is concerned I mean, the reality is with, with transnational corporations, it is difficult for domestic and continental governors to exert control over them. So the comparison I would make, if you think about you know, the British government chasing Amazon around the world or chasing, chasing Starbucks around the world, getting them to pay their taxes, it's very difficult because a domestic government can't chase a, a transnational corporation effectively. It's difficult. I do agree that part of the City Football Group strategy is, you know, it's more difficult for UEFA, for the FA, for others to govern, to control a transnational organisation. So that's one part of it. I think in terms of sport washing, it's an interesting one because in my experience of, of, of having been in the Gulf, people don't sit around in the Gulf talking about sport washing. You know, they do, t- they do sit around in the Gulf talking about buying Manchester City and winning the Champions League, but they don't sit around talking about sport washing. But clearly, you know, what people like us perceive is that somehow, by owning a football club, it's distracting attention away from other issues. And I think one of the issues that, we're, that, that we are being distracted from is this rise of the new geopolitical economy of football. But at the same time, what we know in countries like Abu Dhabi is, is there are different, different standards pertaining to uh, labor and immigrant labor. There are issues around gender equality. There are issues around politics and political suppression, about the freedom of the media and so on and so forth. And, and I think as far as Abu Dhabi is concerned, when we talk about Abu Dhabi nowadays, commonly or typically, we tend to talk about Manchester City and City Football Group. What we don't talk about is freedom of the press or 
you know, involvement in, in the armed struggle in Yemen, for example. So in those terms, clearly people are going to label this as sport washing. I know you're in a rush. Just a couple of quick questions to finish with. Do you think there's, is there greater scepticism with these kind of projects when a state is involved rather than just a, a, a company, i.e. City Football Group with Abu Dhabi compared to Red Bull, who we've mentioned? I mean, it is interesting. If you look at the reaction to... Red Bull in Germany, it has been an adverse reaction, and 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 you know yeah. a lot of fans, not necessarily not necessarily Leipzig fans, uh, but certainly other fans in Germany have not been happy about this. Um, although at the same time, you know in Germany, uh, there's not the, the, there's not been a lot of love for Qatar and their involvement at Bayern Munich. There's been similar dissent around this, but I think it's interesting, you know, in Germany. Whilst that, that, there has been that kind of popular backlash in, in, in England, perhaps there hasn't been that popular backlash. And, and it always seems to me that if your, club's, if your club's doing okay, or your club does okay out of one of these deals, or your club potentially could do okay out of one of these deals, you don't question it. And, and if we look at the case over the summer of Saudi Arabia and Newcastle United, you know, Newcastle United fans, by and large, appear to be really up for this. And as for other fans around the country, there didn't seem to be so much dissent. The dissent seemed to be coming right from Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International and various other groups. So I think there's a, there is a cultural context to all of this. Uh, if you're in Germany and you see this, you, you might resent it. You might you might kick against it. In this country, I, you know, we seem to be you know, biggest league in the world, lots of money, we're the best. So it, it, there's just this natural acceptance. You go to Abu Dhabi, Abu Dhabi, you go to Qatar, you go to China. You know, the state is involved anyway. So you know, if you're a Chinese football fan and you see, see the state getting involved, you just think, well, okay, that's normal. That normally happens. So I think it really depends upon where you're looking at it from. And is football more susceptible? To, the, to these kind of groups being put together because of its global appeal as opposed to, say, basketball or baseball or rugby union, probably? Yeah, I mean, I, I think if we, we were to look at, for example, rugby union, my view always of rugby union is, is, is it's always had a, a much more of a kind of colonially prescribed audience so yeah, in Australia and Ireland and Wales, but but less so in, um, you know, in 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 Switzerland, for example, or or in Peru. Um, so I think I think the 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 kind of global appeal is one thing, and the other thing linked to that is kind of barriers to entry. There are very few barriers to entry to to football in the sense that you get a ball, you put your coats down, you play the game, and that's it. And everybody's talking about it. So the barriers to entry are more limited. So in terms of a, in terms of of prospective owners seeking access to the kind of global narrative or the popular psyche, you know, it doesn't take a lot. It doesn't take a lot. You can do a lot with it very very quickly. But I think the other thing that I would say, and, and certainly if you're comparing what we see in football too, for instance, the financial services sector, is if you look at the, uh, the fit and proper person test in the financial services sector, that is detailed. You know, and, and, and there are much, uh, much more stringent and rigorous controls in place for what constitutes a fit and proper person. Whereas if you compare that with our, our regulations about being fit, and, uh, football's regulations about being fit and proper, they are far less stringent. And I think obviously, as football governors, as a community of football governors, there are still issues for me personally, I think, around you know, who's involved and what they're doing and, and not just around ownership, around gambling and sponsorships and, 
know, so there are a big, big bunch of issues around governance and ownership, I think, still for, for football to come to terms with. We'd better let you go and teach your students. That was fantastic, Simon. Thank you. Thank you, Simon. Right, cool. Top Cheers. Stuff. Thank See you, you later, guys. Let's now talk to a man who is involved in a very similar operation. Paul Conway is the co-chairman of Barnsley FC and part of the Pacific Media Group. They also own significant stakes in the Belgium side. KV Ustend, Swiss side FC Toon, and previously were involved with Nice in France. Paul, I suppose to start with, just explain the or tell us really the the different clubs that you have stakes in through the Pacific Media Group. So in the last four years, we've invested in four clubs. We started with OGC Nice in 2016 and then got that club younger, brought data analytics to France, commercialized it, got the team into the Champions League for the first time um, in its history. And then we sold the club to Ineos uh, last year. We uh, are control investors in Barnsley um, in England and uh, youngest team in the EFL. Play a high press, use data on the analytics side. We took control of the stand in Belgium in May and then completely changed over the team from an older plotting team to an attacking young team, average age 23. Um, and we have a small stake in a Swiss club called Toon. So what are the benefits for you as a group of owning several clubs in a model like you have? So the, the biggest is obviously on the football side where you can basically – play a same style of play uh, amongst the teams. And then when you were recruiting, especially post-Brexit, we have a lot of flexibility on where the players are signed, um, both based upon the location and also the, the level of quality of the player at that time. Um, there's obviously commercial synergies, there's cost synergies, uh, and then having one uniform strategy, uh, because there is a lot of incompetence and corruption in football. And being able to say, all right, this is the way we play. This is the way we sign contracts. This is our type of uh, commercial deals throughout the organization, just like any, any other industry. Is there more incompetence or more corruption in your experience? Depends on the country. Come on, Paul. <laughs> Don't leave it there. <laughs> Paul, I know your feelings on um, the, way we, the way we run football in the, in the UK. Uh, would, that, would, would the UK, would that be more in the incompetence camp than, than corruption, I hope? It's both um, because uh, what we, got, we were in France and, and France gets a bad reputation of doing business in France. We never really had any issues there in three seasons and that's why we want to get back into France. We got to the UK, there's corruption at the chairman level of clubs and there's, uh, from a league perspective, it's the worst, one of the worst leagues to operate in because there's rules, nobody follows them and, then nobody, and the league doesn't enforce them. So we'll compete with any system. Just give us the rules. We'll follow them. That's good to hear. You, you mentioned getting back into France. I know you've been linked with AS Nancy. How are you getting on with that, with that particular deal? Well, we can't comment on any specific clubs we haven't closed on, but our intention is in the next few months, we want to get into France, Holland, and Denmark. And we're basically, we're, we're following our football investments where we're recruiting. So if we find a good amount of undervalued players, uh, for example, we signed a couple of players from Denmark in the last year. Players, if, the, the, if they were in the English championship, we could not afford on their wages or on the transfer fees. Then it gets interesting, and then we look at investing in a club. 
When you say we've signed players, we were talking about Manchester City earlier on in the podcast and, and in particular the, the City Football Group. So when you say we, are you signing players to the group or to individual clubs? Well, it has to be to a club because that would violate third-party ownership um, rules uh, from uh, FIFA and UEFA. Uh, so the first thing we look at is based upon the level of the player, since we're playing the same style of play, uh, what's the best fit? And that could also based, be based upon where they're coming from, which is going to be a bigger issue post-Brexit. You talked about the countries that you target. How do you, how do you focus on the clubs that you are interested in? So we're, we're now four years into football. So uh, we're, if, if, a, if a club's extremely well run, that's probably not for us. And so we're looking at clubs that have some type of issues uh, on the sporting side, uh, maybe on the commercial side. And we, at this point, instead of investing in a big first division club, we'd rather work our way up since we think we're more sophisticated on this four years later. And, uh, but obviously it's in leagues that there's uh, some good talent. That's the first place we're going. But then also uh, there are some countries where the rule of law is, is even worse than the countries we're currently in. And so we, we would avoid those countries. Why aren't you investing in MLS, Paul? It's fundamentally a valuation uh, issue. So MLS teams typically raise money or sell at nine or 10 times revenue, which doesn't make any sense because even um, bigger sports in the U.S., like baseball, American football, they don't even trade at that type of valuation. They may be five times, six times revenue. And so we look at that and say, well, first, the world doesn't want to watch the MLS. So that's why the media rights deals were poor. And we don't see that changing anytime soon. There's good players, but there's good players everywhere in the world. Uh, but then we can invest in clubs that have been around for 100 or 120 years in Europe, where, which the world wants to watch at one times revenue or less than one times revenue. So it's a combination of a big difference in valuation, but then also the fundamental growth of the revenue in these uh, leagues. So it's cheaper. It's more than that because it's, it's we're looking for growth. Got it. And so where does the MLS grow from where it's going from? When you hear the pitch, oh, the World Cup's coming and the next media deal is going to be big. Uh, we don't know that. Uh, but we know the media deals in the last 10 years in Europe have all been generally up uh, double digits. Mm. And of course, City Football Group have, have recently bought clubs in, in, you know, in the same, same shops that you've been shopping, you know, Lomol and, and Soire. Pandemic prices, do you think? Is, 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 there a lot, is there a bit more value out there than there was in 2019? Oh, absolutely. And I think they're seeing the same thing that we're seeing, which is uh, uh, why buy a top six club in Belgium where based upon their resources and their um, player portfolio, they can just build it up over time. Let me take you back to the uh, the model of playing that you're talking about, the philosophy of playing that you that you implement with with every team, and through the analytics. There's an interesting article on the Athletic at the moment that says that pressing, for example, is down in the Premier League this season because of the number of games that they are they are playing. If your group philosophy doesn't necessarily work in one country, is it changed? It's interesting. Like, why do we press? Well, first, this, this is an entertainment, and it is more of an entertaining 
uh, sport when you have attacking, pressing football. But from a, there's a real rudimentary valuation why we press because we frankly can't afford the, the best technical players in our leagues, their wages and their transfer fees. We can't afford incredible young athletes that can run all day, press all day, create chances. Uh, their conversion rates may be lower than the bigger teams. But within our model where we're trying to get in uh, with more undervalued players, there, in addition to the sporting side, there is a, a pure investment side to the reason I'm pressing. Okay, so, um, and fans love that, and fans love watching their teams press and love energy and love commitment. How do fans respond in the main when you take over their clubs? Uh, well, I'll give the example here in Belgium. And we, we had a very honest dialogue. This, this is a club that uh, had as much as a 15 million euro playing budget, um, squad budget in the last few years. And so we came in here and say, all right, well, we're going to change things. You're going to see attacking football. You're going to see more youth. You're going to see this club get younger. We're going to use more players from the academy. Um, and then we're going to selectively bring in other players using data from nearby countries. So this, the last season, the last match here before we came in here, the, the starting average age was 27. We brought it down in one summer to 23. So we had a lot of doubters to it. But if you kind of explain to people in a straightforward manner, this is what to expect, and then they see it. And then if you have some success, it helps. But it's, it's also it's kind of a shame of seeing all these English players who are fantastic having to go to places like Germany and then start in the Champions League for clubs like Dortmund because it also it promotes the youth of these clubs. And it's a real shame seeing all these English players go and then from a financial perspective having to be bought back at 100 million pounds or euros to repatriate great young British talent. Well, that's certainly something that's, that's, that's come across when in conversations with City Football Group. I wonder also, I mean, we're talking about the multi-club model of, of which you're one. What do you make of, of Red Bull? They're the, they're the one that often come up in conversation with me and, you know, who's doing it best, who's doing it right. And I know that they're clearly trying to achieve slightly different things, but what, what's your take on, on, on Red Bull? Well, that's our model. That's, uh, we didn't create all these ideas. We uh, saw what was working and what uh, fit within our model. And so they, what, what's great about the Red Bull group is first they're starting building clubs from lower divisions and, you know, versus spending a couple hundred million uh, euros or pounds to buy an established club. So that's impressive. They have a huge commitment to youth. Uh, and our, our data analytics is mainly focused on uh, players playing in Europe. But when you look at any Red Bull team, they have players from Asia, Africa, all over the place. You can only accomplish that with data. So they don't have 100 scouts around the world. So they have a global data analytics platform. But that same uniform style of play, which starts at, at under 12 level, that's, that's what we aspire to. And so that's why you see the progression of some of their players from club to club and it works because it's the same style of play. And so that's frankly why we recruit and we've had two former Red Bull coaches within our group because um, and the, uh, most clubs really have no clue on how to hire a coach. So we just basically look at our analytics and say, all right, we, we're playing a high press. What's the best high pressing coaches we can afford? And even if it's an under 19 Red Bull coach is the, who we hired here, Alexander Blesson, never had a first team uh, match. We know he's going to play the system 
that we want. And uh, with most coaches, after a couple of losses, they're going to have some, as we say, strategy drift. You don't get that with the Red Bull um, staff. Is this model then going to be one that's replicated in the future? Your model, Red Bull's model? Well, I think what we're going to see in the next 10 years is the complete consolidation of European football. Um, so you're going to see more of this. First, in the countries where there's no foreign ownership or cross-ownership um, restrictions. So you're seeing that in Belgium. There's eight, now nine, with uh, Wassel and Beveren being bought recently by the owners of Crystal Palace. You're seeing it in France. And so it's wherever there's these favorable governance issues in combination with good talent, you're going to see strategic investors from other clubs, especially English clubs, buying interest in them. And then trying to do different versions of what Citigroup and Red Bull Group. Everybody's got their own strategy. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. We'll let you get back to the uh, the Belgian Riviera. Thank you. Hey, thanks, Paul. Okay, thank you. Cheers. Bye-bye. Good stuff, Matt. Talk next week. And you. Take care, everyone. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Another Business of Sport podcast will drop on this feed next Thursday. I'm back with David on Monday. Mm-hmm.